this episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. Create a constraint around it. Put a box around it. And you'll see the ideas flourish than if they just have to go limitless. So you can still harness creative thinking, but you're, you're going to see an immediate boost when you put a boundary around it and say, come on, kids, that let's think of something. And we have to think of it within this space and within this time frame. That and a whole lot more coming up. Jessica, we have an amazing, well, we say this all the time. We have another amazing guest today. And this again, (laughs) they're all amazing. Our guest today is known for his creativity method, which we will let him share when we get to that in our segment. But the thing I think about this is the popularity that has evolved with just science classes to then science lab classes to then steam labs and incorporating all of it as the kids go up they start working with coding and creating or engineering and design and then it gets into maybe even more specifics in high school like film classes so it's becoming more and more of a thing but i want to really emphasize the idea that all gen ed teachers can teach creativity to their students in this small, quick, and easy way to teach it to your class. Yeah, and it can be used with anything. So, you know, we often see it used with sciences, but it can be used with reading and writing, and it it can be used throughout any lesson. Creativity right. and just letting students be creative and release that creative outlet without... Things, like you don't have yeah. to have robots and Chromebooks and things like that. You do need to have this pattern or this method that our guest talks about and will teach us a little bit about it in our podcast. And then you all can get his book called Inside the Box. Here we go. Today, we have Drew Boyd joining us. He's the author of Inside the Box, where he talks about systematic creativity. It's pretty mind-blowing. He's also a podcast host, sought-after speaker, and innovator. Welcome to Adventures in Being Gifted, Drew. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We are so thankful you are here. So, Drew, you have been a professor of marketing and innovation at the University of Cincinnati for 13 years and on top of a 30-year career in the corporate world, but you also make acoustic guitars as a hobby. So, tell us where your journey for understanding the creative world first started. Okay, yeah, I I have somewhat of an unusual career to go from the corporate (laughs) world (laughs) <laughs> to to an academic setting. Usually it's the other way around. Um, but, you know, I love to teach. Um, I love young people. I, I work with young people of all ages. Uh, and it is so fun to teach people creative thinking and, and do the things that, that I do. And I like to be creative. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's true. Yeah, I do make um, acoustic guitars. You know, I started playing guitar when I was a, a kid. And um, something about the guitar itself just fascinates me 
And I want to say about five or six years ago, I went away to northern Canada for five weeks straight and lived in the small bedroom of a basement of this farmhouse. <laughs> so, no, I'm not kidding. I'm not wow. Yeah. To learn how to make acoustic guitars. And now I make, um, make them wow. here in my home. How long did that take? Yeah. How long were you gone? Well, I was, like I said, I was gone about five weeks. Oh, this five course, weeks. And, yeah. And so, um, wow. but now a guitar, you know, making a guitar from scratch is a fun process. I mean, I really start with the bare wood and it, it can take anywhere from, you know, let's say a month to two months, depending on how much detail you're putting in it and um, how much you want to uh, change the characteristics of it. Now, do you play your guitars? I, I do. You know, I wish I had time to play them more. Um, I'm more fascinated in, in making them and studying them and things like that. But I also um, practice innovation on them. And so I like to practice the innovation method that we're talking about today on a guitar to come up with new creative really? ideas. You know, my goal one day really? is to re reinvent the guitar and start making guitars of my own uh, creations. I love that. That's no kidding. That's neat. I can't. Well, hopefully we'll dive into that in a second about how you have changed them. So what else can you tell us about your background journey for just the process from high school to college to where you are now? So, you know, it's a, it is interesting to look back, right, on your career and your life and, and think about where did, where did this all start? And, you know, I'm not True. kidding when I say it, it started with um, teachers when I was young who really motivated me and inspired me. Uh, I was a gifted student. I'll get in math and would participate in in those programs. Um, and so, I don't know, I just like to use my brain differently, I think, and logically. And But I was also a builder. I love to build things and and um, invent things. And, and like most kids, you know, they, they become very creative in how they look at their world. So, you know, my hero uh, then and my hero today, believe it or not, is Captain America. And, uh, <laughs> and so if you if your listeners know, they, of course, they, they know Captain America from the movies. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and so Captain America carries a shield. Well, when you're a little kid, you know, you, you can't have a shield like Captain America, but no problem for me. I found a, an old trash can lid, right, that uh, <laughs> was... Was perfect great. size, was, I'm sure. Perfect <laughs> size, right? And I, and you could you could throw it like a frisbee at your little sisters. It was so much fun. I just was it metal or plastic? I was going to say, ouch, <laughs> <laughs> ouch. No, I didn't hit anybody. Nobody nobody got hurt. But um, it was metal. And um, so, but my point in that is, you know, our our minds are very good at. Uh, looking at something and creating new uses for it, which is kind of what the creative act is. Right. And I, I found myself, and so young kids, you know, if, if, if your listeners think about what they do to have playtime and what they do to at a picnic or on the playground, and they, they make believe, and they also make believe with um, anything like a stick, you know, just picking up a stick and creating a new use for it is creativity. And it and it, it really does get stimulated early. I'm, I'm convinced of that. And so my career, mm -hmm. every aspect of my career had some creative element to it. I was fortunate about 20 years ago, I learned what structured creativity was all about. I'll tell you about that, that journey. And 
what's true now uh, is that anybody can learn to be creative um, no matter where they're starting from on the creativity scale, gifted or non-gifted. Um, I've taught this method to all kinds of people, people with Down syndrome. I mean, really people with challenging cognitive issues. And the secret is in how this method works and the use of patterns. So when when you were imagining and make-believing when you were a kid, did you realize that you were doing creativity? Or when do you think you kind of started having those aha moments and making those connections to the creative world and the creative process? You know, what, what, um, what it took was this. It was interesting. As, I, as my career started to evolve into more about um, how a company invents new products, I was very involved in invention. I'm, a, I'm an inventor myself. I have seven patents. And, um, but I, I didn't really understand the, the creative act until I read a book by a guy named Arthur Kessler from the, the 1960s. It's a very old book. And he describes the act of creativity. And here's how he describes it. He describes it as the intersection of two unrelated themes. And so two things come together that you know don't typically belong together. Uh, Captain America and an old trash can lid. <laughs> right? And all of a sudden you have, a, you have a, a, the act of creativity. A stick becomes a sword. A little stick becomes a sword. That's that's creative. So when I when I learned this from him, I'm like, oh my god! Now I I see now. I could look back and go, that those were all acts of creativity, and then and then it became basically my life's work now is getting people to understand this. Uh, I have gone back and read all the classic literature and research about creativity. I thought if I'm if I'm going to be this, I really need to understand where this has come from and how far it's come. And I have, and I've done that. And now I want people to know that they can be creative too. And they can be hyper creative if they do it in a structured, systematic way. It literally ran through my head as you were talking. Oh, yeah, you know, we need to think outside the box. <laughs> but we grew up <laughs> saying that. And yet you are saying that that is a myth. And you actually have a book called Inside the Box. So tell us a little bit about how and why your reasoning for saying that we shouldn't think outside the box. Think outside the box comes from an old study that was done back in like the early 70s. Uh, a guy named PJ Guilford did a study that used, do you remember the famous nine dot puzzle? Oh, yes. Yeah. We, yeah, we, yeah. we yep. still love that puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> we still love that puzzle. Don't we and, and here's the thing about that puzzle. Guilford gave that puzzle to people, and he found that on average only about 20% of people could solve the mm. puzzle. But he, he is the one that said, you know, if we could just get people to think outside the box, draw those lines outside yeah. the box, the answers are out there. And, um, and that became and still is, as we just found out, the universal catchphrase still yeah. today in our education system and everywhere else in the corporate world. The problem is what most people don't know is two other researchers right after Guilford did the exact same study with the exact same puzzle. They had two groups, one that was the same as Guilford's control group, and then another group got the answer. They were told they had to draw their lines outside the box created by the nine hmm. dots. Well, guess what? In the control group, just like Guilford, 20% could solve it. But in the group that got the answer, guess what? 20%. No difference. No hmm. change. The thinking outside the box is a uh, is a myth, and here's why. Wow. When when you send the the mind outside 
this sort of unconstrained space. When you say go outside the box, it's directionless. It lacks constraints. It lacks guardrails of the mind, cognitive limits. And what happens is the mind is overwhelmed. It suffers idea anarchy or idea chaos. True. And and so, yeah, and I I know you two know this in in what you teach. Look at times when you say, now I want you to do this task and and everything has to happen on top of your your desktop here. It can't go outside this desktop or or some other artificial, but in their minds are real. Create a constraint around it. Put a box around it and you'll see the ideas flourish than if they just have to go limitless. So you can still harness creative thinking, but you're, you're going to see an immediate boost when you put a boundary around it mm-hmm. and say, come on, kids, that let's think of something and we have to think of it within this space and within this time frame and you um and it has to be the color red <laughs> i don't know you know yeah. whatever it is right? but it does make you think about how much more challenging something is when you do put a limitation on it mm-hmm. so you know even games we play there's games where we'll explain the rules and then we'll add that limitation like but you can't talk and then they have to think of a different way to communicate yeah. so therefore they are making their levels of thinking higher in order to eliminate or evaluate which is a better way to communicate. So you just you just demonstrated. I'm going to use that in my keynotes <laughs> now. No, but it's true. Telling kids you cannot talk forces their mind to work harder and smarter. That, oh, yeah. That's the point. You force their mind to work harder and smarter. Whereas unconstrained, they, we all fall prey to a, a cognitive style called satisficing. We find the first sufficiently satisfactory answer out in that unconstrained space, and we stop. Yeah. And where, whereas when you're saying, hey, it has to be read and you can't talk to each other and it's got to be done by one, one o'clock, well, all of a sudden, those little minds go crazy and good, right, and become highly, um, highly effective, highly creative. Oh. That's why inside the box. <laughs> this is exciting. Well, I think you're – having some evidence and the science behind and the research behind why we really do need some procedures in our world. And I think even with our social emotional learning, we really try at least right now at the beginning of the year to really lay that foundation and the procedure piece might take more time because we really do need to repeat it. We need to like walk through it. We need to decide it as, you know, a classroom or however we all decide it. But I think these are the pieces that we just need to talk about, which goes back to the point. We want to know what is your systematic method for creativity? Good. Okay. Well, let me let me tell you a little bit about it and, and the research from where it comes from. Right. Where it comes. And so uh, here's, here's the story. Um, for thousands of years, every day innovators, everyday inventors, have used patterns in their inventions, usually without even realizing it. Those patterns are like the DNA of a product or, or service or system. Uh, those That DNA, imagine there was a way to extract that DNA and reapply it to anything that you wanted to innovate, a new product, a new activity, a, um, a school, um, a home, 
a person. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and what, what's exciting about this is that uh, uh, my co-author, for his PhD research, did an interesting study. He studied highly innovative products initially to find out what made them different from one another. What he found instead is that highly creative things tend to follow one of one of just five patterns. That's that's the shocking thing to me. Surprisingly, most innovations can be explained by five patterns. And those five patterns are this DNA, so to speak. And so the method that um, I we've written about and teach now is called systematic inventive thinking, or SIT for short, and it harnesses these patterns in a way that is unique from any other method out there, scamper or brainstorming mm. or other things like jobs to be done, it has this unique quality to it that I find it to be the most effective. And and I've tried every method out there and my career depended on it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is the one that I, I found it, it, uh, it really does results. Uh, and we can do it right now. If you, if you yeah. like to, oh, we would love, love to, to. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> let's try an example. Okay. Wow, me too are about to <laughs> We are. We're peppy. We take, we use to twist your arm too much for that. No, we use scamper with our third graders, but we'd love to have a new method to try out. Yeah. And especially since, you know, you've done all your research, let's do it. Yeah. yeah scamper is a nice little system. It's it's, it's more brainstorming based. Right. But it, it yep. has a lot of the same structure to it, which we like. In fact, you'll see you'll hear some of the patterns and say that sounds a lot like scamper. And and, and it's true, and I can tell you why. There's a, some very important differences of why SIT uh, and Scamper aren't, aren't exactly the same. So let's let's practice with the two of you right now. Okay. So you're sitting in a classroom, I presume, or in a conference yeah, room? Yeah, we are right okay. here in our classroom. Okay, good. Now, Jessica, I want you to look around, and I want you to just... Pick, look around the and pick any item, anything you see on the wall or in front of you or in your, your desk or one of the kids' desks. Just, just pick an item for me. All right. How about a post-it note? Post-it note. Okay. Now, Jill, what I want you to do, I'm going to name five techniques, and I want you to pick one. All right? Okay. All right. I'm going to name them off. Okay. Uh, all right. Subtraction, task unification, multiplication. Attribute dependency, division. Pick one, quick. Attribute dependent. Wait, what was it? The attribute, attribute one. Dependency. Attribute dependency. Yes. Okay, very good. Now, here's how attribute dependency works, and then we're going to apply it to a post-it note. Attribute dependency is when you take two attributes of something and you create a correlation, a dependency, so that it, as one thing changes, Another thing changes. So I want you to think about, for example, transition sunglasses. You know, those glasses mm, yeah. that, mm-hmm. that get, as the light outside gets bright, the lens gets dark. Yeah. Or in your, in your car, <laughs> for example, uh, the windshield wipers on your car, they may, do you know how some of them change speed automatically? Right. What, is, what are they changing speed in relation to? The um, rain, like the amount the of rain, rain coming down. Okay, very good. That's that as one thing changes, another thing changes. That's a classic attribute. So now we're going to do the same pattern on post-it notes. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think, first of all, what are the variables of a post-it note? What are the things that can change 
its color, its size, size, shape, its, uh, shape, its stickiness, stickiness. You know, um, its uh, type of material. You know, we think of paper, but it doesn't have to be. That's true. It could be a different material. We've used digital um, post-it notes. Yeah. Uh-uh. Um, uh, oh, don't jump oh, yet. Oh. <laughs> don't jump there yet. Don't, don't jump there yet. <laughs> don't jump there yet. We're those kind of students. Right. You know, I'm a teacher too, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you too would be those kind of students. Yeah. All right. So, no, kidding. So, what, what are some variables now about your class? Think about the class during the day. What are some variables? So, number of kids in a room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, gender of kids, age okay. of kids, developmental level of kids, um, as well as uh, subject that they're being taught, time of day, uh, their attention span. Okay, that's a good one. Let's latch onto that one. Okay, appropriate. As, all right. As the attention span of the child changes, the post-it note changes. Ooh. I want you to right now to think about what would that post-it note do that could change in response to the attention color of a temperature. <laughs> well, it, it could be color, but let's say, let's say, you know, let's imagine they're using post-it notes. And it starts getting hot when they're <laughs> the I'm temperature gets. Okay. Now, uh, you're laughing, and that's a good sign because laughter, I'll come back to that, but laughter tells me you're onto something and you think it's funny, but we're actually going to go there. Okay. Imagine imagine the kid is holding the post-it note and the child is holding the post-it note and they're doing an activity on the board, but their engagement starts to drift away, which is what we worry about as teachers. It's like a mood ring. It could become like a mood ring. (laughs) But 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 uh, attention ring. (laughs) what, What if it, what if it's a post-it note that is like an Instagram? It goes away eventually if you don't mm. use it right. Oh. What if what what if there's like a digital post-it note or some other form of a post-it note where the kid gets it, but there are time limits on to keep their attention so that they have to do something within a, spirit, a particular point in time. Something that now hmm. is measuring their engagement or responding to their engagement or if the other way around, the better their engagement is, something about the post-it note changes. The more they get or the more so fun. All right. So so he, the three of us now could sit down and think about how post-it notes could be an, a, an entire ecosystem of, of student engagement and all kinds of ideas that would help us think about inside the box what this new post-it note is going to look like. And we can bring other things in it. It doesn't have to be a post-it note necessarily, but we we start to stay there. We constrain ourselves right inside the box to the post-it note, and it's going to drive some sort of engagement for some particular exercise. It could be a math exercise. It could be a, um, English, whatever, whatever topic that you're teaching at the moment about animals, whatever it is. Yeah. That's how the method works. So what we just did like is created a configuration that you know, I, I, look, I'm, I know you two are very smart, but in a million years, I doubt you'd wake up one morning and go, you know, it'd be great if post-it notes helped me keep <laughs> students attention. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it really does also correlate with us teaching about the levels of thinking. And I, I really can feel all of mm. us 
bing, 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 like in our little heads, these little light bulbs going off at that higher level, like the analyzing or evaluating and creating levels. And me wanting to patent a new invention all of a sudden. (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is, this is going to take us in a whole new direction, Drew, this, this year when we do our creativity unit. We love it. Yeah, I, I do. And of course, you know, I, I, uh, have a, um, a special fondness for what you all do uh, at this age for kids. You know, I teach graduate students and at the university, but it all starts where you are. That's right. So, well, you're welcome anytime. You if you want to bring any of your students to our little lab, you can come and bring them and teach them all your SIT um, method. I think I think we have a collaboration in our future. Ooh, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you're virtual, we could do that too. But oh. We, this is so cool. That'd be fun. Yeah, it is fun. It is amazing. And this is the, you, you just got a taste of it. We just did one tool. Right. One, one, all we did is pick two, two things. We picked student engagement and one component, one aspect of the post-it note. Okay. To do something valuable. Imagine we did this over the course of a couple, three days. This oh, is what I do. It's so fun. For a so yeah. with it being fun and here we are just, trying one sample, one of the methods, how might this be taught in like a high school, like a high school class? I know you teach college, but, and we teach elementary, but what, what about the middle grades and high school kids? So the, there, there is um, a, a way to teach this and learn it. I, I, you know, to be honest, it's not so much hard to learn in terms of the steps of it. Right. Uh, so I can lay out the steps to, just like, just like a, a cookbook approach, right? Do this, do this, do this. There are um, a couple of parts of it that can be challenging for people. And let's play back the tape to our little post-it note and get, you know, engagement post-it note. When, when I started to bring those two items together, be honest with me, what was going through your mind? Well, I thought, how can we actually change it from what it already is? Yeah. But when you gave us that specific, right. like, yeah. well, you gave us five specific choices, but when you defined the one I picked, I think that really narrowed it down into that direction that we could start to think about the ways, you know, not only just the size and the color, but like, I just, it, I don't know. I thought about the temperature. Okay. So, so inside the box do you see how constrained you were mm-hmm. you were very constrained I, I gave you just just one task one combination one direction and your mind immediately now if i hadn't done that my point was you know you immediately started thinking well I, you know how could this be changed you started thinking about it from the how do we make the configuration do something whereas i was starting with how do how do we make this beneficial We'll get to how you do it later. Mm-hmm. And this is the big thing where it's different from Scamper. Scamper start basically starts like put these two things together. How would it work? Whereas SAT is a little bit, this is generalized, but a little bit more put these two things together. Now, what would be the benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the so, correlation, right. And the correlation, yeah. And so what what the SAT method does very well. And I'm going to come back to the high school student mm-hmm. in a minute. Sure. That's very important. We all have in our brains a cognitive condition called fixedness. Fixedness is a cognitive bias that uh-huh. makes it very, 
very hard for us to imagine other configurations than what we know. So when I said post-it note, you immediately thought, and we all thought, and we visualize a stack of about 30 post-it notes with sticky on the back, usually yellow, but not always. And we have this fixed view of it, right? And so what the SIT method does is help you to start to break that fixedness, to consider other configurations, different shapes, different sizes, different uses, different configurations completely, mm-hmm. um, and, and help you move beyond that, and again, in a structured, constrained way. <clears throat> it turns out there's three types of fixedness, and, and, and don't get me wrong, fixedness also has a very beneficial side of things. Fixedness is sort of how we do things. It's kind of our daily routine uh, checklist. Mm-hmm. Get dressed, go to work, have breakfast, da 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 But when you want to be creative, you need to be able to find that fixedness and then have a tool that breaks it. That is the beauty of the SAT method. So back to the, you know, to the um, middle and high school student to learn this, uh, the, the, uh, some formal training, which is a, a, exactly what I'm talking about with the superintendent at, at Mason Schools, Jonathan Cooper, about is there a way to include some of this in a curriculum, for example? Yes, please. Or, or would, would we be able to maybe teach it to teachers who put just one tool? The nice thing about this, you don't have to learn all five tools. You can get by with just one tool for the rest of your life, and you'll be much more creative. Uh, I see that that all the time. Mm-hmm. I know all five, but you don't have to master all five. So if we just taught students the step-by-step uh, approach for one tool and, and had them practice it, but be aware that they can't be lazy with it. I think that's the, that's the thing that I worry about with students yeah. is that you can't, like any tool, you can't be lazy with math, right? You can't just go, oh, I'll divide these two and I, I might not get it perfectly right, but it's good enough. No, that's not, that's not how, you can't practice math in a sloppy way or any tool. Uh, you'll get sloppy results and the same is true with SAT. Okay. So even with those kids who are lazy per se and say, I can't, I don't know, I can't think of anything like what's stuck or stuck or just, you know, it it can happen in third grade. It can happen in adults, you know, any age, but how do we kind of get them over that hump? What's your strategy for that? Now that is a great question. Let me tell you what I would do. What I, what I do, the, the minute I see anyone struggling with coming up with an idea, I know right away they are struggling from a what, what I call the closed world problem. Let me describe what the closed world is, and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. How do you, so what, how do you use it? The closed world principle basically says this. The, there's a, um, when, when coming up with an idea, you should strive to use things that are within your reach and within your grasp at, uh, to find a solution. Uh, and what it essentially implies is this, the further away you go to get an idea to your problem, the less creative it's going to be outside the box, right? The closer in proximity your solution is to your problem, the more creative it's going to be. There's an inverse relationship between proximity of the solution to the problem and its level of creativity. And I won't take you through all the proof of that, <clears throat> but I'd love to someday in person. If, yeah. If and what it means is that, let me give you an example from the University of Cincinnati where I teach. 
we uh, all experienced the, the pandemic. Uh, it was a big change and big adjustment. And I know you all, Mason, and we all had many things we had to do. Signage, had to have protocols, we had to have uh, remote teaching and social distancing. And oh boy, it's, it'll be good to have that forgotten, right? Mm-hmm. But, but think about this. In the early days, in, in April, March and April of 2020, uh, we were at a large university, 47,000 students, and we were deciding on what to do. And, and I'll never forget, we, the team was put together to start to work on this. And one of the first things that I did to the team is, hey, let's, uh, let's embrace closed world thinking here, meaning this. Let's define the closed world first as maybe one dormitory of, of the university or maybe just one floor of the dormitory to figure out all the, all the COVID things that we have to do. Well, heck, let's keep going. Let's, let's get it down to one freshman room hmm. with two, two freshmen living in, in the dorm. And, and here's why. If you can't solve it for two freshmen in a dorm room, what makes you think you're going to solve it for 47,000 students? Yeah, shrink your audience. Great point. Yeah, great point. Okay, shrink shrink the problem. And, it's, it, and that's another way of looking at the closed world. Draw a circle around the problem, and then you, you give yourself the benefit now of knowing exactly where you are inside the box and how you're going to pull things together to generate creative solutions. So that's exactly what we did. Now back to your situation, let's say you have a a student that is stuck and uh, let's say she is working on a task with some uh, things in the classroom and just can't come up with an idea. What you do then is narrow their focus. In other words, change the closed world or just not even narrow it, give them a focus. In other words, put those constraints around them. This goes back to what we talked about before. Say you've got till one o'clock, it's got to be red, and it has to all happen on your desktop. <clears throat> or within the con- uh, confines of that problem, draw an imaginary boundary around it, a closed world, and say to them, now look at everything you have available to you and force yourself to come up with a solution just within that boundary. Hmm. That, that that is most likely going to help them push over and push through and and the counterintuitively right it's not going to take away from their creative ability it's actually going to increase the odds that they're going to solve the problem amazing yeah that is that is a very interesting way to look at it i feel like we yeah. should try it tomorrow <laughs> no and i when I, I told you about the university i'll tell you another quick story. It's, it's about a, a company that makes pharmaceuticals um, for diabetics, for people who have diabetes. Oh, my dad's it's a, diabetic. Okay. So it's a dr- drug called Humalog. And the company mm-hmm. called me and said, you know, we're, we're really having trouble uh, launching this into China. And I said, well, why? And I knew right away they were, ha- they were having a closed world problem. And I said, what do you, what's, what's the hangup? I said, well, it's a big country, you know, it's a big population. Um, it's a difficult country, all these different reasons they gave me. And I said, look, let's get it down and ultimately walk through them with them a series of just like I did on the dormitory. So let's pick one city in China, mm-hmm. something small, like you know, about the size of Cincinnati. And then, in fact, let's go to somewhere 
outside of Cincinnati. Let's go to a town like Mason. In fact, not just Mason. Let's just pick one neighborhood, kind of where I live in Lexington Park. And in fact, let's just pick one street in this neighborhood and find one person with type 2 diabetes. Hmm. Now, these people are looking at me like I lost my mind. And I said, no, 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 stick with me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you and your colleagues to sit down and figure out how to get your drug for Humalog into that man's body every day at the right dose, just for him. And they looked at me and said, why would we do that? And once again, I said, if you can't figure it out for one patient, what makes you think you're going to get the rest of China? Yeah. It's great so that's exactly to have that perspective. They, yeah. That yeah. is exciting. So tell us what, and I'm, I'm kind of jumping around, but I'm really thinking about our gifted students and our gifted audience and parents of gifted kids. <clears throat> How would this SIT method be super beneficial for gifted kids in high school, in middle school, whatever? So the, the, the SIT is both a method and sort of a, a disposition, a way of life, right? It's not, it's a, <clears throat> it's an attitudinally, I look at creativity as a, as a competency with three parts, knowledge, behaviors, and skills, knowledge, behaviors, and skills. And so kids in school are increasing their knowledge and their skills, but now we want to improve their dispositions, how they behave, how they, their, how they orient themselves. And one of the things, closed world thinking, you know, the, the gifted kid now ha- brings all the right things. But now, how do we get them to think, embrace some of these uh, principles of creativity, like closed world? Um, the other principle that, that I talked about is the principle of fixedness. Mm-hmm. And then to be aware that that no matter how um, gifted they are, they have fixedness, maybe even stronger fixedness. And, and their their success mm-hmm. in life is going to be their ability to overcome and recognize fixedness. Fixedness is not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. It's like I said before, it's it's a natural part of life. You wouldn't want to get rid of it. But the the superstar is the one who's going to be able to honor that fixedness and and find it, recognize it and smile when they find it and go, there it is. And then push through it and generate a creative idea, a post-it note that helps student engagement. Right. <laughs> Who would right. have thought, right? <laughs> I love it. So you mentioned briefly when we did our little, you know, mock little practice with you a minute ago, mm-hmm. the, the, you have five different patterns, right? So what right. is your favorite one to use when you're... You um, know, I, people, I get asked that question an awful lot. Oh. It, it's like, it's, it would be like if I had five children and you said, to me, Which <laughs> what is your favorite? favorite? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. You oh, pick. It's little Susie. You know, yeah. I don't, the rest, of them, I don't care about them. At all. <laughs> no, they, you know, like five little children, they, they each have their own gifts. They each have their own uniqueness. Um, I, I'm always smile when I, I mean, I didn't come on here thinking we were going to invent a new post-it note. <laughs> and I, so I always, right. I always get a smile. But I know each of them has their own sort of personality and their own charm and their own um, – they make me laugh in a different way. So I, I don't really have a favorite. Uh, I will tell you a quick story. One of the techniques called the division technique was probably the last one I learned, and I really didn't honor it and appreciate it and think it had – you know, I thought, ah, it's, it's just I don't really need it. Unfortunately, I um, had a colleague – who she she pretty much forced me to learn it and said, you're going to learn this if it kills me. 
and she did. She jammed it into me, and, and I, uh, I love the division technique now. And so does my wife. Here's the funny thing. My wife, God love her, when I met her, she, she had so many talents, but not very creative. And now she's one of the most creative people I know. And she's upstairs. I can, she'll validate this for me. I'm not kidding. But here's my point. She now is one of the most creative person. And it's so funny. She just comes up with amazing ideas. And it's always the same technique. It's always the division technique. And huh. she doesn't even know it. Oh, my gosh. So now we're going to have to try this out with division to really get the full appreciation for yeah, it. It's, but they're all like that. They, you know, I think... What I tell students is pick one that just speaks to you. You know, there's a certain like kids have their favorite color. Kids have their favorite shirt, you know, whatever it is. People find a tool that they can kind of really kind of really like and just sort of speaks to them and they recognize it and they see it and they use it. Great. I'd rather you go deep on one and master one than, than be, say, mediocre at four or five. Well, that's good advice, too, especially for those of us teachers trying to incorporate this in our classrooms. So what would be a little bit more detail and reason for your quote that you've been known to say, the greatest of all inventions is a method of invention? Yeah, it's a, it's a great quote. It's got by a guy by the name of Roger Smith. Right. I'd love to take, I'd love if it came from me, but it's good <laughs> enough. You know, he came up with it and it's, it really is true when you think about it. The greatest invention all is a method of invention. This has been missing, right, for, for years and years. And, and, and my co-author's research is, is so uh, groundbreaking. It was, it was published in the two most prestigious journals in the world, Nature and Science. And so what I love is the, the fact that there is science behind this. There is experience behind this, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, evidently, I've, I've been told I'm the most experienced practitioner of this method in the world, and and I um, and I'm a big, huge believer in it, obviously. But I also have seen the fruits of, of investing in it and learning from it. And if you have a tool, it's not the only tool you're going to need in life. You're going to need lots of tools, but in terms of an invention tool. I find this to be the most powerful, the one you can depend on and really build your career on, your life on. Awesome. Well, we're, we're, we're sold. We're hooked. Absolutely. <laughs> we're going to try <laughs> this <up>. for sure. <laughs> so just out of complete curiosity, Ask we it. want yeah. to know what <laughs> do you think is the best and most creative invention of a product out there right now? You know, when I tell you the answer to this, you're going to be so disappointed. Oh, tell us, tell us. <laughs> and, 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 but just you have to bear with me because I've had other uh, people in, that I've interviewed with and they like, that's it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, brace yourself. Fair warning. I gave you fair warning. And I'll tell you what's a great invention and what's not so great of invention. Let me okay. tell you what's okay. not. Let me tell you what's not so great of invention. Well, I'll t- tell you, too. First, not so great invention is the post-it note. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> until now, <laughs> well, until now, we are going to change funny. that. <laughs> You're going to work on that patent, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> that'll no, be your eighth patent. <laughs> I know. Um, here, here's why I say that the post-it note is often held out as an example of great creativity, when in fact it was just d- dumb luck that hmm. invented it, and and serendipity or luck yes it, it it can work 
But serendipity or pure chance has a, through time, a, a terrible track record. I don't, yes, it's invented penicillin and chocolate chip cookies and other things, but compared to all the other inventions that were invented non by not accident, uh, serendipity has a poor track record. The post-it note was serendipity, number one. Number two, it took the company something like 20 years to recognize that they had a, a good product and get it in the market. And that is just unacceptable. Uh, it's mm. Now, that said, I also like the fact that <clears throat> what the inventor did is he was using it for, he created this post-it note, they didn't like it, but he then took them to church and used them as, as uh, bookmarks in his hymnals. He sung in the church choir, and, and some people saw it and said, hey, what is that? And, and it was the creative act. It was the combination of two unlikely things, right? A post-it note and a bookmark, and all of a sudden, we have the post-it note. The other hmm. terrible invention is the wheel. Huh. What? <laughs> Tell us why. <laughs> the, you know, the wheel, here again. Don't it reinvent was, it. <laughs> the, don't reinvent it. <laughs> <laughs> You two are too funny. You know, I, I tell the jokes here, right? You can steal them. We'll let you. <laughs> okay. I'll steal all your good lines. That's great. No, but seriously, what, what the wheel, people think the wheel is a great invention. You know, it, it took a couple hundred years before the wheel actually found a legitimate use. I mean, it, it wow. was invented. And and how we, how we know is that anthropologists have found ancient ruins and have found kids toys like a little toy cart that had a wheel on it but nowhere in their society did they use the wheel as a, for for a cart hmm. so that they they made it a child's toy <laughs> they they had the invention <laughs> right in their hand they didn't but transition here, it to real life they, they, they did not use the sit <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they and the reason is there were no roads right they didn't they yeah, really it's yeah. not it's not the wheel that matters it's the roads that they yeah. go on that you need it so the wheel is not a great okay so drum roll please drew's greatest <laughs> i know this will be boring of all the inventions out there I, I still think the one that is the greatest of all time is vision correction eyeglasses mm, yeah and and here's why uh vision um impairment is the single disability in the world in the world all right most humans have some vision problems or will throughout Good their point. life hadn't thought about it now that what, way yeah okay now what if you're do you either of you have contact lens or i do glasses? yeah perfect vision now, over here <laughs> okay. now, you do for now but so i know that's true She's younger I change <laughs> all right now, could you teach if you didn't have glasses? I could, but not but for very far. I couldn't see very far. far. Right. So so imagine not being able to drive. Imagine no, not being true. able to work. Imagine yeah. not being able to read. Imagine, think about how poorly off we'd be as a society, as a civilization, as yeah. a species without the ability to correct our vision and see. I mean, we've got so many talents, but eyes really, you know, improving our eyeballs really changed the game for us. So, and it continues, they be, they continue to be innovated all the time. My, uh, we'll have my students sometimes, and, and sometimes we'll do this exercise that we just did with you to create yeah. new 
uh, concepts for eyeglasses, and it's amazing. Even something as old as eyeglasses mm-hmm. can be um, innovated all the time. And so that's my my all time winner. Something has to be you know at the top of the list, and that's what I choose. Well, that makes us think about how we took the scamper method and had our students basically pick a card that we had written different um, everyday common items. Objects, yeah. So, for right. example, we had like a cup, like a solo cup is one. We had um, a house, I believe. We had eyeglasses. A computer. A computer, yeah. shoes. Right. And the thing that struck me in my thinking when we were doing the little exercise earlier is the attribute about the temperature because we had a student who took his ordinary sneaker and had to change it in some way using the scamper method. And so he changed the temperature. And so that way he could have warm shoes if it was cold outside and cool shoes if it was hot outside and it would change depending on what the weather was. So that kind of what, you know, is what made me think of that. But then we have a student who is very enthusiastic. She wears glasses herself and we are going to probably have her on this episode and talk about it, but she is so inventive using her little eyeglasses. So I'm not going to reveal what she did, but it was really cool how she changed it. It was really cute. As I hear the two of you, I would tell you, uh, you if you're using Scamper, you're just one short step hop, skip, and a jump away from full-blown SIT. Yeah, yeah. You know, you really you really are. And and if, and, you, and if you move to SIT, that doesn't mean necessarily get rid of Scamper. It's just a, it's a different tool. Mm-hmm. can be used in different situations. Uh, there are other things like design thinking. There are other paradigms that SIT is not in, it's not a battle out there, right? It's not a, so, so for, but that the Scamper is sort of a natural training ground to move into the more hardcore SIT mm-hmm. approach by yeah. patterns principles, uh, especially closed world fixedness, cognitive fixedness, and uh, some other principles that we didn't yeah. talk about. So food food for thought. Oh, yes. I think definitely we are inspired to add on to our scamper unit because of your SIT method. And I think it would be a lot of fun. And I love the inside the box thinking because a lot of our kids would get frustrated yeah. and be like, I don't know. I don't know. Day after day. And others would just take off. So I think that think inside the box, mm-hmm. give them those limits, those boundaries, I think is going to be key. Right. Because everybody does go by the myth. Think outside the box. Mm-hmm. There's posters all over that yeah. say think outside the box. Yeah. So this is this is wonderful. This is wonderful thinking for us yeah. and a challenge for us to really take it to the next level. Good. And use that that uh, terminology with them. Say, hey, gang, today we're going to do something different. We're going to think inside the box. We're going to put these uh, constraints around you, and whether you call them constraints or not. Mm-hmm. But but in other words, get them to feel the difference. Right. And so a, a, an exercise I, I do with adults, I'll make this quick, is one, I'll have them ideate something like I'll say, okay, come up with a new piece of exercise equipment. And I don't give them any instructions. I don't do anything. And they come up with something. And then I'll say, okay, now I want you to come up with a new exercise equipment. But you want to, it has to be inside a car. 
Mm-hmm. Wow, I mm-hmm. love that. See, okay. all of a sudden, boom, I just felt my boom. brain yeah. just mm-hmm. go to that right. next level. You're just, and so it's the contrast that you two, as professional teachers, experienced teachers, know learning comes from the contrast between that old experience and that new experience. So, so I'm always teaching with this, this idea let's do it your way first and see what it feels like. Then let's do it this way. And then I want you to notice the difference. I don't have to teach you anything. All I have to do is let you experience a difference and judge for yourself. And that that's an example. And so the, you know, the, with kids, give them the, the outside the box approach, then the inside the box, let them evaluate the difference yeah. and be able to you know, both into both directions, whatever is going to work for them. And, you know, it makes me think that parents listening at home can even use the SIT method at the dinner table or driving in the car and just practice this because how much fun did we just have doing the post-it note activity? And just, you know, I think it would be great for families to have as their dinner topic. It, it is the kind of thing that I like to do in the moment because it just so, it, it makes you laugh. It, just, it, it is. It it's amazing. fun. Innovation is both a, a, a competitive act, but it's also the sheer glee, what I call the, you know, the that uh, sudden glory that you get in your mind, like, oh, I see it. So the post-it note that's going to help engagement. <laughs> and, 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 and you see it when little kids, they get this big, goofy smile on their face. And adults, the same thing. I know I do. I get this big smile on my face, like, oh, my God, I get it. I see it. So yep. what other what yep. other stimuli does that for us, right? Yep. This is where humans are so, I think it's so special. You got that right. That's where it's at. <laughs> all right. Well, Drew, we are going to go ahead and wrap up and just thank you so much for all of your creativity that you have provided us and inspiration for sure. And thank you for yeah. being with us today. Yeah, that was great. Thanks, ladies. Oh my gosh, Jill, I feel like after hearing all of the things Drew said, I am totally going to change my outlook on how we teach creativity. It's not, wow, think about all the things you can do and, you know, outside the box. Wow, just really go anywhere. And I now understand that creativity is best when you have those limits and boundaries. Yes. And just like Drew said, you need to have patterns. Things are following patterns. They follow kind of like more of a smaller space to think about, like he was talking about with the dorm room and how to deal with COVID on a university campus. Don't go large at first and think of the entire population. Think about one room and two roommates and go from there. Solve the problem smaller and then go big. And I think that was really an eye-opener and a flip of what we normally typically yeah. do with problem-solving. Yeah, I, I am totally enlightened that I feel like changed forever because it is no longer looking at that huge picture, but shrinking that audience and starting small. Yes, and I love his example of thinking about the idea with students and even his college students to try and invent a new exercise machine And then when you keep it so wide open and so broad, they almost don't know where to begin. But then when you give that one limitation, like he said, but it has to fit in a car or be in the car and you're like, whoa. And then all of a sudden you have more of a direction. A focus. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it is a lot of fun. So we hope that you pick up his book called Inside the Box. Check him out on social media and Twitter. And then... 
See and no what longer happens. say think outside the box. That's right. But think inside the box. <laughs> so go create. Go out there and think inside the box. <laughs> That's a wrap. All right. Go out there and make something happen and share your voice and make it be heard. Have fun on a Friday and to keep you so nervous Welcome to our voice segment where we are passing the mic to parents, teachers, and leaders to hear about their gifted adventures. Hello, my name is Christy Hart. I'm 45 years old. I'm a mother of three and wife to Lloyd, and I am an artist and creative. I've only recently allowed myself the freedom to become an artist. So let me explain. When I was young, I had a magnetic draw to art and to creativity. I lived in Cincinnati and the local art museum felt and it still feels like a church or a religious experience for me. It was sacred. I couldn't spend enough time there. I could spend hours just walking around the hallways, soaking everything in. But I convinced myself that I was drawn only to be a seeker or a consumer or an observer of the mystical power of art. It felt very unattainable to me. I put artists of any kind on gigantic pedestals. They were the unicorns, the magic ones who were born with superpowers, and I could never attain them. I settled into the life of being a good girl, keeping my nose clean, blending in with my peers, you know, shoving any creativity or bravery down deep in just so I could fit in, just like so many of us do. It wasn't until years later that I found myself living overseas in England. And during this time, I had what I would call a creative emancipation. Um, I know that sounds super dramatic, but it was just a series of mundane events and choices that led me to self-discovery. The first thing was that I made friends with a group of artists and creatives I hung out with painters or sculptors, musicians, and I sort of had a revelation. They were regular people. They were just like me. They had jobs and mortgages and children, and they paid taxes, and they wrestled with boredom. The only difference was that they created space in their daily life to practice creativity, to learn new things to be vulnerable enough to try and to keep trying. They had accepted the weird and wonderful convergence of their passions, their interests, and their personality types. They did the brave, hard work of living creatively creatively and authentically. Now, the second thing I did after watching a lot of other people create songs, poems, paintings, and huge messes, I let myself try. I tried textiles, painting, music. I wrote terrible poems, and I just kept creating, asking questions, trying techniques, taking classes. 
I put music on and I painted with other painters, even though my art looked like a second graders next to theirs. But it was my art. And luckily, the people around me were so tender and kind and patient. They took me seriously, even before I was willing to take myself seriously. They included me in the art club. I was allowed to be a mystical unicorn, even though my magic was in its early stages. I was patient with the process of becoming. I was a student of creativity for years. I watched others and I practiced quietly at home. I learned how to turn on the creative neural pathways in my brain. I started taking a lot of pictures of things that inspired me, looking other artists up on Pinterest. I took different ways to work. I started reading books and learning about the creative process of other people. But most importantly, I started looking myself in the mirror and calling myself an artist. Seriously, without laughing or making silly faces at myself. And do you know what? Over time, some of my paintings and fabrics actually became evocative, interesting, and pieces that people gave me money for and hung up on their walls. I can look at some of my own work and it gives me joy, pleasure, and a sense of accomplishment. I can see how my own deficiencies and my own struggles push me to create in ways that I hadn't expected. So my best advice for you, my friend, if you are a hidden creative, is just try. Find community with other creatives and be vulnerable and open to the process, even when it takes you off-roading into new areas that you were not expecting, even when it's hard and painful or boring or even embarrassing because you are magic and you are invited to the art party. I love to chat with young aspiring creatives or older people who have always desired a creative life. And I give them official permission to be creative. You are allowed to try to fail to change your mind a million times as long as you keep going. So thanks for listening and cheers to all my fellow unicorns. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating, write a review, and tell all your friends too. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Being Gifted Pod and join us again next time for more adventures and being gifted. <laughs>